Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy V. Wilson. Hey, Tracy, it's another depressing episode. I know. So I'm... <laughs> We're recording two episodes today. The other one is, is not... Uh, depressing, but as I was looking through our listener submitted suggestions, trying to figure out what we were going to do for today, uh-huh. uh, overwhelmingly they are massacres and explosions and tragedies and uh, a, a lot of. They're very dour. Yeah, we have hundreds of extremely sad listener suggestions. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. This one today is one we've had numerous requests for. Uh, it's a mining disaster that happened in France in 1906. It is super depressing, but it's also very fascinating. I think that's part of why we get so many requests for mm-hmm. depressing things. Yes. There's a little bit of historical rubbernecking perhaps in play. Like I know I kind of like the really grisly history stuff mm-hmm. because I'm removed enough from it. It's far enough back that I don't have to feel too like weird and conflicted about reading about it. Like I'm not getting delight from the, the current misery of somebody, but I am fascinated at how it all plays out and how all the pieces of the puzzle fit together. Yeah. Well, and, and mining disasters have been so prevalent within the mining industry for basically all of history. Yes, it's a very, very dangerous trade. And the explosion that we're talking about today is uh, at the Courrier mine, and it was beyond horrific. Uh, as such, a heads up, because we are going to talk a little bit, we in particular quote a news report that is pretty graphic. So if that's something that you have a little bit of trouble with, like you can't listen to uh, graphic descriptions of of the dead, uh, we will give you a heads up that that's coming and uh, you'll have about a minute that you can skip past. But otherwise, or if you just hate hearing stories about a lot of people dying, this might not be the one for you. But if you're fascinated by mining history like I actually am, and I think many of our listeners are, then here we go. Mm-hmm. At this point, coal production in France was a much smaller industry than in the countries of uh, England and Germany. This is a really expensive undertaking, and France just didn't have the kind of coal that could be used in metallurgy or for producing gas, which were two of the more lucrative uses. Even though France was mining coal, the country was consuming more coal than it was producing. Prior to 1850, uh, coal production in France came primarily from the central area of the country in Le Creusot, Saint-Étienne, and Blanzy, among other towns. But at the mid-century, things really started to shift north to Lens, Béthune, and Pas-de-Calais, uh, and those areas. It's really started to grow. In 1852, those northern coal fields were producing one million tons of coal. By 1870, the region was producing 4.3 million tons. And from 1870 on, it increasingly became the center of French coal production. One of the main mining operations in northern France's coal industry was the Compagnie des Mines de Courrières, which was formed in 1852. So it was part of that massive growth. And they rapidly expanded their interests by opening 16 coal pits near Lens, becoming the third largest mining operation in all of France by 1900. And this mine was so expansive that there were actually tunnels into it from several different towns. It employed more than 2,000 miners regularly. And when we say miner, we both mean miner, like a person that actually works in a mine, and minors, like people that are underage, because some of the the men that worked there were actually really boys. They were just teenagers and sometimes quite young teenagers. 
the Corriere Mining Company had some impressive statistics about the safety and working conditions that it could really crow about. I mean, particularly in comparison to other mines. It was, before this disaster, doing pretty well. The company had reduced the annual death rates of mining mining workers. It maintained much safer roads around the facilities, and it won awards for excellence in its working arrangements. It was considered in the early 1900s to be one of the safest mines in France. On the afternoon of March 9th, 1906, a fire broke out in the number three pit, which is also called the Cecil Pit. And that's uh, 270 meters or 885 feet underground. And the initial source I read said this happened at around 3 p.m. But I also looked at an older text um, from a, an engineering and mining periodical at the time. And they suggested that this fire had actually started several days before that. So I just want to point out that there's some disparity. but. We know definitely on the 9th that they were trying to address it uh, because this was an area where masonry work was being done and workers were not successful in putting out the fire with any sort of expediency. So the decision was made, and this is pretty standard operating procedure, to close all access points to the Cecil pit and sort of wall it off. And the idea, of course, was that absent of air, this fire was just going to naturally extinguish and burn itself out. This meant that March 10th, 1906, so the next day, was basically business as usual. Workers reported in, and at 5.30, right on schedule, cages descended at pits number 2, 3, 4, and 11. The chief engineer in charge of the number 3 pit indicated that he had isolated the fire. Just before 7 a.m., an explosion rocked through the mine. Fire traveled almost instantly through 110 kilometers. That's a little more than 68 miles worth of underground tunnels. So that is an extremely fast-moving fireball, basically. From the surface, it looked like the explosion was the most intense at the numbers 3, 4, and 11 pits. Clouds of dust and smoke shot out from the entrances to the mine, and then the fire followed. At the number 11 pit, the explosion caused the cage to the pit to be flung upwards into the winding gear, making it a little bit impossible to move it for a bit. And the cage was basically the elevator that got people in and out. Correct. The initial explosion killed several people on the surface above it. One man working the surface at the number four pit named Georges Davion was thrown by the blast into an iron staircase. His skull was fractured and he eventually died from his injuries. One of the mine offices on the surface also had its roof blown off in the blast. According to survivors, the scene underground was, as we mentioned earlier, nothing short of horrifying. Men were burned alive. Some had been dismembered in the explosion. Some were trampled in the ensuing panic, and others were crushed when roof supports disintegrated. Even the men who were physically able to make their way through the debris described having to climb over corpses, really just desperate to uh, avoid the same fate. I was reading one account where a survivor had said that they were all trying to rush out, but some of the men in front of him in the tunnel were dying as they were running out from what they were inhaling. And so they would fall and then people would just have to like not trip over them and try to make their way over the bodies. Sirens went off in all of the nearby towns to alert everyone that there had been an underground explosion. Immediately, townspeople rushed to the colliery. These were, after all, mining towns. So in many cases, families had multiple members working at Courrières and coal mining was their entire livelihood. The panic above ground as people poured into the area meant that the gates to the mine had to be closed to prevent complete chaos. 
Eventually, the military got involved in an effort to rein in the pandemonium. And before we get to the rescue and cleanup efforts, uh, we're going to talk first about one of our great sponsors so they don't get kind of wadded up in all of the gross talk. So, <laughs> because we love our sponsors and don't want them mixed in with that. Uh, so we'll take a, a little sponsor break and then we'll be right back to the story. So back into the story of the Courrier disaster. The first group of survivors out of pit number 11 had hurriedly climbed ladders immediately after the blast. They were really quite near the entrance to the pit to begin with. And several of them, that once they emerged from underground, were rushed by onlookers who were eager for any information about what was happening below. But the men were all in shock and they weren't really able to answer questions with any sort of detail or clarity. The chief state engineer for Pas-de-Calais arrived on the scene in accordance with an 1813 de- decree that any such incidents needed to immediately fall under the jurisdiction of state engineers and not local authorities. Cages were coming to the surface periodically with survivors, and each time the gathering crowd fluttered with eager anticipation, hoping that their loved ones were the ones coming safely to the surface. Uh, and meanwhile, rescue parties were also organizing, planning to uh, first extinguish the fires that were still burning in the tunnels, because those were blocking the way in many cases, and then to try to retrieve both the living and the dead from the pits. Occasionally, particularly early on in the whole process, miners would emerge on their own, sort of stumbling, dazed from the tunnels. And every time there was this big surge in the crowd, hoping that it was someone that was part of their family. In the paper Galois, a journalist described the horrific sight of cages loaded with bodies coming to the surface. And this is the gruesome part. Uh, We want to include it just to make it clear how horrifying the scene was. So if uh, that seems like it would trouble you, you can skip about a minute starting now. Quote, in the cage, the terribly mutilated bodies are heaped up, piled on top, one on top of the other, all completely naked with a slimy coating of sweat. Some are decapitated. There are trunks without limbs and detached hands and feet. There are piles of bleeding flesh. The whole site is an evil smelling, loathsome human morass. When you touch it, it falls apart in bundles, which are like pieces of saturated tinder. They are stacked up haphazardly on hand barrows. Blankets are thrown over grimacing faces, broken bodies, and crushed limbs. The access tunnels continued to burn, and that made it extremely difficult for anybody to even attempt to reach the trapped miners. As the day of the explosion ended, there were still more than a thousand men and boys trapped inside the mine. A temporary mortuary was set up near the mine to deal with the constant influx of bodies that were found. The cleanup and identification of the deceased actually took weeks. As rescue efforts continued, new precautions had to be taken. There were so many dead people and horses in these tight tunnels that there was some concern that their decomposition would make the rescuers sick. Any men who were willing to go into the tunnel to search for both the dead and the living had to wear sterile suits and rubber gloves and carry disinfectants with them. And the protocol for dealing with the dead shifted as well. Uh, we talked about those horrible cages that were coming up and the, the horrible things people were seeing. So eventually they shifted and the bodies that they were finding were actually placed in coffins while they were still underground. Uh, they would be treated first with a cresol solution. And then these coffins would be sent to the surface where uh, a medical examiner would open them, inspect them and identify them before burial. Uh, that way it was a little less riotous when cages came up. Uh, but there were so many bodies 
that eventually they had to start communal graves to bury these men so that they could cope with the sheer volume of work that they had. On day two, the decision was made to reverse the underground air current to try to ventilate the tunnels for the rescue workers. There was some resistance to this idea, though. The fear was that any survivors in more remote areas of the mine might be put in jeopardy by the shifting air current. Uh, but the change was made over those objections. Mining teams from a German colliery arrived to aid in the search, as well as a fire squad from Paris. At one point, 40 men banded together to form a rescue party, and they ventured into one of the shafts that was not at that point fully engulfed in flame. But the shaft collapsed on them, and all of them were killed. And that's a story that actually repeats many, many times. There were a lot of people that went in to rescue and never came back out. This incident became the primary news story in France, unsurprisingly. George Clemenceau, Minister of the Interior, as well as other high-ranking government officials, visited the colliery. Politicians and royals throughout the world started sending condolence letters, and there were donation campaigns across the globe as well to try to raise money for the families of the victims. The most astounding development in this story, and this is kind of a headline you'll sometimes see in amazing history lists or whatever, uh, happened on March 30th. So this is almost three weeks after the explosion, because you remember it happened on the 10th. So we're at day 20 at this point. And on that day, 13 men arrived alive at the entrance to pit number two. They had been in the mine that whole time, and they were brought to the surface in a cage. They had been wandering in the dark shafts together for miles, looking for a way out, and they had eventually caught the air current from an air ventilator that was after they had shifted that current and followed it to the source where they were extracted. These men had survived by drinking whatever stagnant water they could find in the mine, and they had supplemented that water with their own urine. They'd also been eating horse meat from the animals that had been killed in the blast, as well as any provisions that they could find on the dead. They'd also eaten oats that were kept in the underground horse stables. While they were weak, they were deemed to be relatively physically stable, considering that they had been exposed to literally poisonous conditions throughout this ordeal. Their mental health was also fairly good. They were immediately sent for medical treatment so they could be fed a controlled diet, treated for any medical needs, and slowly reaccustomed to light because they had been underground for all that time. Yeah, you can imagine having little to no light, basically in pitch black for three weeks and then walking out into the sun is very shocking. Uh, and at this point, those men had all been presumed dead, so much so that there are reports that family members who came to greet them after being notified of this amazing event that they had emerged were actually wearing their mourning clothes when they did so. So naturally, the initial response to this miraculous discovery was joy. But that was shortly followed by a wave of doubt and anger. People were concerned that the colliery in the state had mismanaged the rescue effort. There were accusations that they had likely left other survivors to die. Additionally, that new hope that sprang from the 13 survivors emerging caused a near riot as people rushed the number two pit hoping that they were going to be able to find even more miners alive. Police and military once again had to get involved to manage the situation. Two of the Miraculous 13, Henri Nini and Charles Provost, were awarded the Legion of Honor for their courage and their leadership. In later years, Nenny, as a recipient of this award, was criticized because some of the other men claimed he hadn't really exhibited much in the way of valor and that he had, in fact, been a hindrance to their survival rather than a help. Yeah, there are lots of stories of him 
lagging behind, really kind of having some breakdowns, saying, sitting down and saying that he wanted to just die, uh, while the others were trying to keep spirits up and keep everybody moving. So, and again, it's all their accounts. So while it's all first-hand accounts, they don't all match up. So we don't know the whole story. Uh, but in the meantime, the effort to mount additional searches did continue. And on April 4th, the last survivor was found in close proximity, kind of between pits number four and number 11. And this find was actually almost accidental. The rescued man, Auguste Berton, had cried out weakly when he thought he saw a light. Uh, and a member of an active search party, which it sounds like by the accounts that I read was not, they weren't really looking where he was. They were somewhere else, but he just happened to cry out and catch their attention. Uh, and they followed that cry and located him. He said he had been attempting to escape when he lost consciousness and later considered trying to amputate one of his limbs so that he would die because the situation was that hopeless. He had no idea how long he'd been unconscious or how long he'd been trapped. It was a complete shock to him that he had been underground 25 days. He did not have any sense of time at this point. And while Berton's rescue was once again a moment to rejoice, it further fueled that community anger that had already built that Courier Company and the state engineers who ran the rescue operation had kind of dropped the ball and maybe left behind people that were uh, validly able to be saved. Security at the mine office at this point had to be bolstered because angry crowds were forming daily at the colliery gates. Uh, as a side note, some sources in this mention that the company shut down the rescue after only a few days and then sealed off the tunnels in an effort to prevent the fire from spreading any further. This would have trapped anyone who may have still been alive inside those tunnels. But it's really hard to find substantiation of that one way or the other. Yeah, even in the reports that we'll talk about in a, a moment uh, that were that were created in the investigations, there is some wishy-washiness about how exactly who exactly gave what orders and and how exactly they wrapped up the rescue effort. Uh, it did not go on for weeks and weeks, though, and it was kind of a surprise, like when the, the 13 men came out, that really did make people go, oh, we should still be looking for people. Uh, at that point, it had stopped. So, uh, But before we talk about the aftermath of this tragedy and those investigations, we're going to pause once again for a word from a sponsor. The final death toll in this tragedy was more than half of the mine workers, 1,099 people. Hundreds of others were injured. Five separate inquiries into the cause of the tragedy and the handling of the post-explosion rescue efforts were launched at various points. And while some investigators argued that the reversal that had been made in the air current that they did late on the second day was likely disastrous for other, anyone still in the mine because it basically took away their breathable air, there was a counterargument made that most of the men had actually died on the first day with a much smaller number on the second. So that shifted current was actually also what created a trail of sorts for those 13 men who emerged eventually to find a way out because the ventilators pumping were what they picked up on. And in the end, that current reversal was deemed entirely justifiable giving, given the circumstances. The cause of the blast and the reason for its incredibly far-reaching fires was another issue for investigation, particularly because it had been established that there was no fire damp in the mines. While the number three Cecil pit appeared to be at the epicenter of the blast, there really wasn't a definitive answer in the matter of exactly what caused that blast. Speculation often involves theories around gases seeping through cracks in the walls. 
Uh, and in case you don't know what fire damp is, that is the, those are the gases that are usually associated with danger in places like mines. And it can cover a numerous different kinds of gases. Methane is often a really prominent one, which I have a question in it. I couldn't find anything in my research. They had stables underground. Mm-hmm. Horses make methane. Sure. With their butts. <laughs> so there's, me- so I'm a little confused on that point, but it maybe was trace amounts enough that were not considered uh, problematic. But it was believed eventually, however, that coal dust was really what enabled that fire to tear through the tunnels at such an incredible pace. According to a statement issued by the Council of Mines, quote, as regards the danger of dust, neither the experiments that have been made nor the lessons learnt in practical working could have given rise to any suspicion of the possibility of an inflammation of dust on a scale of such magnitude in a mine in which there was no fire damp. Explosions of dust alone in the absence of fire damp that have been hitherto recorded in France, having never extended beyond distances of 50 to 80 meters. Up to this point, fire damp had been the thing that mines worried about in terms of safety. And since there was none in Courrier, there were standard practices that were really, really unsafe, such as leaving light bulbs uncovered. Yeah, they're like, there's nothing in the air that's going to ignite. We don't have to worry about, you know, safety covers for these lights. But they weren't taking the coal dust into account. There was also some interesting stuff that happened as a consequence of this. Uh, one that's uh, a political angle is that a year before the Courrier disaster, Kaiser Wilhelm II had announced that Germany supported the Moroccan sultan who was challenging French authority in that country. So that caused some friction between Germany and France. And on a positive note coming out of all of this, those German uh, miners that came to assist in the rescue effort uh, that showed up to assist and search the mines really led to a little bit of a softening of tensions between Germany and France. There was a lot made of like we may have problems, but we're all brethren at the end. Another effect was that the disaster galvanized growing unrest among mine workers. Already, the coal industry had seen a multi-year trend of miners' wages dropping while co- company profits were rising. And because of this disaster, a miners' strike started. It was one in, of several in France at the time. Uh, to run it by the numbers, in 1906, France had a total of 1,309 labor strikes involving 438,466 strikers. This totaled more than 9 million days worth of work that was lost when it's calculated in man hours. It's estimated that 20% of those men and 35% of the days of work lost were related to coal industry strikes. Yeah, they were going through the growth, uh, the growing pains of any industrializing nation where there were lots of industries that were having strikes, but really the, the bulk of it was the coal mining industry. And that resentment actually carried on for years, uh, even as various strikes sprang to life and then died or were negotiated away. Many of the men who survived the Courrier disaster went back to working in the mines because other jobs just wouldn't pay the same wage. There were stories of some that I read that tried like, working in the admin side of the mining industry as clerks, but they just weren't making enough to support their families that way. And additionally, kind of keeping this long tide of just unrest and sort of anger at the mining company, uh, the Courier company didn't exactly go out of their way to take care of the survivors of this incident. Some men who had been trapped during the disaster and eventually made their way out were paid for the shifts that they would have been scheduled during that time, but no more. Others were paid small sums with no further effort to ensure their livelihoods or their safety. 
became a public relations nightmare for the coal company and in some ways for the coal industry itself. The year after this incident, uh, M.J. Taffano began experimenting with coal dust to more precisely define its characteristics and its explosive tendencies. Since this was something no one had really looked at before, suddenly it became very important to figure out how this needed to be handled. And his work and writings on the subject uh, are considered the foundation of all coal dust research. And his influence in the field actually continues to present day. On the 100-year anniversary of the tragedy, there were numerous remembrances in northern France. While you might think an event from a century before would be long forgotten, it was still really very much in the minds of the citizens of towns who lost people that day. Modern miners placed flowers on the ground where tunnel openings had once been. And in some cases, these are actually families who lost relatives in these explosions in the fire. In the town of notel Soulans, each of the 404 citizens of that town who were killed were represented by a badge worn by a townsperson. 404 white balloons were also released in memory of the deceased. Even a century after the Courier explosions, there is still anger over this event and how it was handled. There is lingering sentiment that the valuation of profit over life is a continuing problem in industrial nations. Since the Courier disaster... There's only been one mining explosion in the world that claimed more lives. That happened in China in 1942, and 1,549 people were killed. Yeah, so uh, while there is one that is considered larger, Courier is often pointed to as like the horrible mining disaster. Uh, and part of that is how it was handled in the, the aftermath. Uh, so it's terribly sad. And I, I really was very touched and quite moved reading about the accounts of the 100-year anniversary and how mm-hmm. people handled it. I, I read a, a translated quote. I didn't use it because I wasn't sure of the how good the translation was from the original, but by a miner that was basically saying, like, I know my job is dangerous and marking this anniversary you know, is important to me because it it reminds me that I always have to be careful. Like, I always have to look after my coworkers and my, you know, the guys that work under me down there, like this is a serious business that we do and we have to be mindful all the time. Yeah. It was like, oh man. Do you have some listener mail? I do. I have listener mail that made me squeal with delight when I read it. It is the cutest story. And it's also a beautiful postcard um, uh, from Prague. And it is from our listener, Amy. And she says, Tracy and Holly, my hubby and I are on the European honeymoon of our dreams. First of all, congratulations. Uh, mazel on your nuptials. Uh, they went from Budapest to Vienna along the Danube and then Prague and Berlin. She said, from Gallipoli to Suleiman the Magnificent to Lizdomania, being a regular Stuff You Missed in History class listener has made this trip so much more enjoyable. I know things about history because of you. As proof of your world domination, our Czech guide at the Prague Castle cited your episode on saponification when we visited the Soap Lady of Prague. Thank you. Oh, my gosh, Amy, that's the best story of all time. I love that story. (laughs) I loved it so much. Uh, And then she makes a suggestion that I might use in the near future. So hopefully. And she sent us this beautiful postcard. Uh and I just love it. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you telling us that because that was super fun. If you would like to write to us, you can do so at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com or also at Facebook.com slash History on Twitter at History, at Pinterest.com slash History, MissedInHistory.tumblr.com. We're on Instagram at History. Basically, any of the places you might go to look at social things, you can put History, and you'll find us. 
Uh, <laughs> that's really it. We should do a quick summation that way instead. Uh, if you would like to research a little bit more about what we've talked about today, you can go to our parent site, How Stuff Works. Type in the word mining or mines, and you will turn up a few articles, including what happens to abandoned mines and how underground mining works. If you would like to visit us online, you can do that at mistinhistory.com. We have an archive of all of the existing episodes back to the very beginning of the podcast, uh, as well as show notes for any of the episodes since Tracy and I have been working on the show together, as well as the occasional blog post or other goodie. And you get to see some pictures that are associated with podcasts. It's a fun time. So <laughs> come and visit us at mistinhistory.com and howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 